We're in John chapter 3 this evening, and if you have been with us and been attending our services on Sunday night or watching them, you'll know that over the past year or so, we've been going over the theme of redemption in Scripture from Genesis, and we're going to have a couple more sermons after this one, and we'll finish in Revelation. But also, if you've been following along in this series, you'll, you'll know that we are past the Gospel of John. So you might be wondering, why are we going, I mean, we've covered Pentecost, we've covered, uh, you know, the conversion of, of Saul, we've, we've covered Acts 10 last week. So why are we going back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 3? Well, this is very foundational to our faith. It has the theme of redemption running through it, and obviously to overlook this passage, would, uh, we would not be doing this series uh, justice. So we are in John chapter 3, and this foundational passage to the Christian faith. And we see two men in this passage. You have, obviously, Jesus, but you also have this man. He goes by the name of Nicodemus. And if you look with me in verse 1 of the third chapter of John, we read, there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Who was this man? It says he was a ruler of the Jews. So in this passage of scripture, when you get to John chapter 3, it's important to note what John wrote in John chapter 1 and John chapter 2. We Discover in John chapter 1 that John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus has always been. He was never created. And so we see the divinity of Christ. You go into John chapter 2, and you enter into the life and ministry of Jesus. You'll find out that uh, in John chapter 2, you discover the first, at least the first recorded miracle, the miracle at Cana, when he turned the uh, water into, into wine. And then not too long after that, he cleanses the temple because they were not, uh, you know, what they were doing was not pleasing to God, as you could see, because he turned over tables and he was uh, very angry, Okay. So what he had been doing from John chapter, just in John chapter 2, caught the attention of many people, including the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And it raised their eyebrows enough to where they are talking about him. I mean, how can you not talk about this man who is performing miracles and turning over tables at the place of worship? And it caught the attention of this man, who was a Pharisee as well, by the name of Nicodemus, and says he is a ruler of the Jews. So he is a man of authority. He is a man of, um, he is a well-educated man. He's a Pharisee, so to be a Pharisee, you have to, you, I mean, you're very uh, heavily trained theologically and in the uh, Jewish faith, Jewish customs. And so it, it doesn't just say he was a Pharisee, it says he was a ruler of the Pharisees. He earned a great reputation. Uh, his status was given. It was earned, I should say. And I'm sure he believed he achieved this certain identity. And a lot of people, I'm sure, looked up to him. And anybody 
who wanted to be anybody probably wanted to be uh, like Nicodemus. He was an upstanding man of the Jewish faith. But being that, being an upstanding Jew, an upstanding Pharisee, he is compelled to talk to this man named Jesus. He, he notices what Jesus has been doing. He notices what Jesus has been saying, the miracle he's performed, and he wants to have a conversation with Jesus of Nazareth. So it says in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, there's a few observations I think we should take note of in this verse. First of all, the fact that he's wanting to even associate himself with Jesus by talking to him. The only time Pharisees really wanted to talk to Jesus was when they wanted to put him in a trap and try and get him to stumble as if the Son of Man could stumble or you could, you know, deter him from his purpose. But that was pretty much the only time Pharisees wanted to speak with him. But you have a Pharisee, Nicodemus, who really wants to talk to Jesus. And John takes the time to mention that he comes to Jesus by night. Now, Jesus, I mean, John, I don't think would just randomly put that in there, nor would the, the Holy Spirit who is directing John to put this in here. Why is this in here? Why would Nicodemus come to Jesus by night? Well, we've we covered who this man is, who this man was, Nicodemus. He is a Pharisee. Pharisees don't like Jesus. Nicodemus is a, a well-educated man in their belief system. And so for Nicodemus to go to this carpenter's son who is, is uh, you know, Jesus, he, he, he was not trained uh, like the Pharisees were according to their thoughts. For this man to go to Jesus, if he were caught, if word got out that a ruler of the Jews, that a Pharisee who was a leading Pharisee were to come to Jesus and to ask him questions, he would be shunned. I mean, he would be done for. He would be the talk of the town and people would say, what in the world is this man doing talking to Jesus? And he probably would have been uh, raked over the coals for it. So that he comes to him by night. He's, he's a little timid. He's embarrassed probably. And a lot, a lot might criticize him for coming to Jesus at night, but I don't see any other Pharisees doing it. So he comes to Jesus by night and he makes a statement. He says, Rabbi, we know that you have, just read it earlier, I'll read it again. We know that you have come from God as a teacher. He says, we know. So these Pharisees know, apparently they've had conversations about, I mean, how could you not? Who is this man that is doing these things? He has to be, there have been conversations saying you have to come from God as a teacher. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. No one can perform these miracles. No one can speak with such authority unless God is with him. And he doesn't even realize uh, to whom he's talking. Yeah, he's talking to God in the flesh. But he says, I mean, we know that you come from God. They might not admit it, and I might not admit it in the daytime, but I'm coming to you telling you what, what is going on, what's being said about you. So <laughs> what's, Jesus's, what's, what's Jesus' response? You know, you might think Jesus being the humble, lowly man he is, 
would say, oh, thank you, I appreciate that. Or, you know, you're not so bad yourself. I, I hear a lot about you, you know a lot. I'm impressed. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't respond in that way. What is his response? Jesus, in true Jesus fashion, gets straight to the point and says something that is so simple yet profound that it seems to go over his head. What does he say? After this man compliments him, calling him rabbi, which is teacher, which is a teacher of authority, a well-respected teacher, calling him that, this man of authority calling Jesus that, saying, you have to come from God, giving him this compliment, Jesus replies, truly, truly. So he's getting his attention. Truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he gets this compliment from this Pharisee. And I'm sure Nicodemus probably thought after he said that, you know, I'm probably going to, you know, impress this, this man by giving him this compliment. But Jesus gets straight to the point. He says, hey, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So not only does he say you have to be born again, he says unless you're born again, there's no way, no way on earth you're going to see the kingdom of God. So what does Nicodemus think about this? When he hears this, this response, this answer by Jesus, what is he thinking? We, we've, you know, if you're raised in church, you've definitely heard this passage, but this passage is so well known that many people who don't go to church, weren't raised in church, know about it. Hearing the term born again, you know, that's a very common, commonly used phrase. It's even used in the secular world now. I mean, if you, you know, I've read articles before about sports teams that were terrible before, and then they get really good, and it says their franchise has been born again. You hear terms like, the term being used like this, used so loosely today. What would Nicodemus think about this statement? What would he hear when he said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God? This, what is this? this kingdom of God. Well, for Nicodemus, it would have been a future event, this kingdom of God that, that would be coming at the end of time. And he would, he would be right. The kingdom of, there is a kingdom of God that is coming. But also, even though Nicodemus was a Jew, he was very well acquainted with Greek culture. And in that culture, they had um, a belief that history was not linear, that it was going to an end. They believed, it, many of them, not all of them, many of them believed it was cyclical, that history would keep repeating itself and that eventually the world would get so bad that it would be purged, that it would have what they would call a regeneration, be regenerated, and then start over again and repeat itself. And we see Jesus use this language uh, in Matthew chapter 19, Verse 28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, that you uh, who have followed me, he's talking to his disciples who said, you know, we have left everything to follow you, so what's there going to be for us? And so he responds and says, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, he's using the same word that this Greek culture would be used to, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we see Jesus using this word regenerated or in this text, born again. And what uh, this text is saying is that, you know, what Jesus says in Matthew 19, what he says in John 3, he's saying what 
these Greek philosophers got it wrong. There's one regeneration. You have to be born again to be made new, to be made alive. And what this text in John 3 sort of hints at, Paul outrightly states in the book of Titus. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes, He, he being God, saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of what? Regeneration, there's that word again, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So what, as I said, John 3 hinset, Paul speaks of, Jesus has said before, where's this new birth coming from? It's coming from this future kingdom of God that, is willing, that indwells someone who believes. God himself dwelling in man. But you must be born again to receive this. So Nicodemus hears this. He hears Jesus speaking of this. He says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thinking, this sounds ridiculous. Born again, what in the world? He replies with a pretty crass reply. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Uh, this is impossible. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I mean, there's, there's no way. This, this is ridiculous. Jesus, you know, I said you came from God, but what you're telling me to be born again, how can a man be born again when he's old? There's, there's no way. That, this is impossible. This sounds ridiculous. And so Jesus replies. He says, I tell you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, I want to take a step back real quick and just, just kind of give us a, a, a backdrop to what Jesus is saying here. So, in the Old Testament, there is the Hebrew word for spirit, and it can be used as spirit, breath, or wind, and they're used pretty much interchangeably. So when God in Genesis created man, what did he do? He created him from the dust of the earth. He molded him. He fashioned him. And what did he do? When he molded and fashioned Adam, was he alive? No. You, you have a man that was created from the dust of the ground. What made him alive? God breathed the breath of life into him. This, this word meaning breath, wind, spirit. And what does it say? Man became a living soul. You have the same thing in the Greek language as well. The word uh, for spirit, breath, or wind can be used for the most part interchangeably. And so Jesus is sort of playing with this language here, if you will. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So you're born of the flesh, you're of the flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He said, so don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again, because I'm not talking about a fleshly physical birth. The wind, wind and spirit, same, same wording. He said, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it. You can hear the wind, but you, don't, you, you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So everyone who is born of the spirit, same word, spirit and wind. And he's playing with this language saying, you know, that there's a fleshly birth, but to be born again, you have to have a spiritual birth. And he said, it's sort of like the wind, Nicodemus. Same thing as the spirit. You, you, you don't know where the wind's coming from. You can hear it. 
You definitely see the effects of wind. I mean, we live growing up in Texas, growing up close to Houston, see the effects of hurricanes, and up here the wind blows constantly. In the summer, it's not cold wind, unfortunately, but it's blowing. You see the effects of the wind. And he says, it's the same thing, everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nobody can really explain what happens at the point of salvation, but you surely can see someone who is born again by the way they are living. Their life is changed completely. And that's what he is saying. So everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we see what Jesus says here. And Nicodemus still, our friend is still struggling here. He says, how can these things be? But he's asking the right questions. He's listening. He's still a little confused. And he says, okay, I, get, I sort of get, I think I get what you're saying. But how can these things be? Because unless what you're telling me, what I think you're telling me, Jesus, unless I'm born again, anything I've done, whatever I've done, it doesn't, it doesn't matter as a Pharisee. My identity doesn't matter. The other day, Sierra and I were, uh, I don't even remember where we were going, but we were in the car, listening to the radio, and a song came on. She was, started to sing with it, and I'd never heard the song, and I said, you know this song? She said, I don't even remember what song it was. She said, yeah. I said, well, this is a new song. She said, no, it's been out a while. I was like, well, define a while. You know, because I've never heard this. I, this has got to be a new song because I've, I, I love music. I never heard of it. And uh, I said, look it up because I was driving. I said, look it up. And if it's been out within six months to a year, I still consider that a new song. And so she looked it up. She said, Chris came out in 2019. I was like, oh, well, you know, okay. I guess it's not as new as I thought it would have been. I said, I, I can't help it. I like good music from the 70s, 80s kind of. I don't know what happened in the 90s, but then you kind of have a resurrection in the early 2000s, and then it just drops. It just drops. But, you know, I, I like good music, okay? But every once in a while, I listen to new, to new music for, for several reasons. There are a few, I'll give maybe a few good songs. I don't even know if I would say good. But something that is interesting about music that I am intrigued by, by no matter what era it comes it comes out in is you kind of see the culture in the music, what's going on. And there's a song that came out that I was listening to, uh, and it's called What Was I Made For? And it's by Billie Eilish. I never thought I'd bring her up in a sermon, but <laughs> she, um, she does have a song called that. And the, I don't remember the words, but basically she's saying everything that she thought of that would fulfill her hasn't. It hasn't. Her identity, what she thought would maybe complete her, hasn't done that. And you see that in the lives of so many people. There might be people um, who think, okay, my identity is in my morality. My identity, and so they strive, and they strive to be perfect. And that, that is draining if you strive to be perfect. And so they, they realize, okay, this isn't, this isn't going to work. So they move on, and they, someone might tell them, well, you need someone in your life. You need a relationship. And just like 
that old song, going back to songs, you're nobody until somebody loves you, right? Was that Frank Sinatra? I don't know. Anyway, so you're nobody until somebody loves you. And so I need a relationship. That's where I'll find my identity. And so they pursue a relationship. They realize putting all that on one person, that does not fulfill them, and that's not fair to the other person. So they realize, okay, it's not in my morality. It's not in my relationships. Well, maybe, maybe I just need to pursue a career because then I can become successful. And so they pursue that, and they realize it is a grind. That does definitely not fulfills. They thought, if I get this job, I'll be happy. They find out real soon that that doesn't work. Maybe if I find it in a hobby. Maybe if I find a good hobby, that will really complete and fulfill me. And you go on and on and finally realize the book of Ecclesiastes is right. That, you know, vanity, all of it in and of itself, just this alone, getting your fulfillment in that is vanity. I'm sure this is probably what, in a way, Nicodemus felt like. He invested his whole life in being a Pharisee. His education, his status, how the culture viewed him, how people looked at him. And now he has this this lowly carpenter whom he just wanted to speak with and ask some questions. And he says, unless you're born again, you won't see this kingdom of God that you have studied about. You will not get to experience the kingdom of God. You will not have God in your life. So think about this man, what he is probably feeling and why he's asking these things, that that all these things that he thought would fulfill him is not. And Jesus says, unless you were born again, everything you studied is not going to matter. And Jesus kind of stabs and twists the knife a little bit more. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? You don't, you've spent your whole life studying this. You know way more than just about anybody else. And you don't, Jesus is basically saying, you don't understand this rudimentary principle in the Old Testament that's found all throughout Scripture, then you have to be born again. Shame on you, Nicodemus. And so, and he's not doing this to belittle him. He's doing this to make him aware of the true meaning of this theme of redemption that is way bigger than what he was thinking. And he says, you know, unless... Unless that, uh, yeah, I've told you these earthly things. If you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you these heavenly things? And he goes on into this beautiful illustration. He expounds from the scriptures, from the book of Numbers. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. What, what's this passage? What is he referring to? What is he alluding to? Well, in the book of Numbers, what happened? Israel once again strays. They stray from God. He punishes them. He sends venomous snakes. Those snakes bite the people of Israel. And you could say, you know, the venom could represent sort of the sin in their life that's killing them. And so all these Israelites are dying. And God tells Moses, you need to build the very thing, the image of the very thing that is killing these people. Build a bronze serpent. And all you have to do is hold it up. And once you hold it up, you tell those people to just look at that bronze serpent. You don't have to go up to it. You don't have to touch it. You don't have to walk up to it. You don't have to lift up your hand. You don't have to do any of that. 
Just look up at that bronze serpent and you will be spared. You will be saved. And the scripture said anybody that did that was saved. They didn't die. Now think about a person in that time and who's experiencing that. And, and, and when they have been bitten by the snake, you hear Moses saying, okay, I've made this bronze serpent. All you got to do is look up to it. Just look to it. Just look to this bronze serpent that I'm holding up. There might have been some people, the text doesn't say, but there might have been some people in that crowd that said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I need to be healed. I've been bitten by a venomous snake. I need to be healed. The last thing I want to do is look at a snake. Look at the very thing that bit me. Why would I do that? What would have happened if they did that? For anybody that said that, they would have died right then. They would have eventually have died in that condition. They probably would have thought there's an easier way to get healed. There's a, there's a more logical way to do this. But Jesus said, well, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So the very thing that the Jews said would be a curse if someone were to hang on a tree, the Son of Man will be lifted up in the same way. And he's saying, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. He said, just as those people in the wilderness, all they had to do is look up at that serpent, they would be healed. All you have to do is look up to the Son of Man on that cross, believe, and you will be healed. How many people today say that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard? That is idiotic. That is stupid. That is what Paul says, foolish. Paul said, people who don't believe in the cross, they say it's foolishness. How could I look at a Jew 2,000 years ago hanging on a cross and believe what he did for me would be sufficient for me to be made right with him, that is dumb. That's stupid. That's idiotic. But Jesus says, just as in that day, the Son of Man will be lifted up so that whoever looks at me and believes, they are going to live. Why would they live? Why would they live? What's the purpose? Why would Jesus say that? What's the reason? You come to the apex of this passage in verse 16. For God, you could probably all quote it in here. For God so loved the world. He's saying God loved the world in this way. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's why he loved the world in this way that he would be willing to hang on that cross, live the life you couldn't live, die the death you deserve to die, hanging on that cross. He loved you that much so that whoever looks to him and believes, they will not perish. They will have everlasting life. They will be able to be born again. They will be able to see the kingdom of God. And Christ, his first coming, when he came the first time 2,000 years ago, he, God didn't send his son. He, he's saying, basically saying, I wasn't sent in the world to judge the world, but that the world through me would be saved. If it weren't for me, Jesus saying, coming into this world, if it weren't for me stepping into this sin-sick world, living this perfect life on your behalf and dying this death, you would not be saved. There's no way. And he goes on and he says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten 
Son of God. Why do people shudder at the name of Jesus? Why do people, why are people fine with you talking about religion somewhat, talking even about God, mentioning the name of God? But as soon as you mention Jesus, hold the phone. I, no, I don't want to. You're crossing a boundary. Because he said some pretty radical things. He says, unless you essentially believe in me, you won't be born again. What does that mean? Well, we covered it, but that's very, that's very much a radical statement. He says, if you don't believe in me, you're judged already. We don't like that word. But Jesus being God in the flesh, the very standard of righteousness, will judge. The only one who has the right to judge one day will judge. And he says, if you don't believe in me, you're going to be in judgment. But the reason why people also do not like Jesus, hate the name of Jesus, is because he's the light. He's the light that came into the world. And what does evil hate? Light. What does darkness hate? Light. Says this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. We love our sin in our flesh. We love our sin more than God, apart from God. And we are fine. It's more comfortable hanging out in this sin in the dark, being comfortable in that, than having the light of the glorious gospel confront that darkness. And because of that, men hate the light. Men hate Jesus. So for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But you know what? The only one who can redeem you is the very light himself, Jesus Christ. And unless you're willing to step out into that light, step into him, look to him and believe, you will not be born again. You will not be changed. Coming into the light, you experience the new birth. What's that new birth? Believing in him, repenting, meaning I'm coming to the end of myself. I trust you, the author, the finisher of my faith. It's something only God can do, that he could breathe life into a lifeless body in Genesis, and even more miraculously, breathe life into a soul and have it come to life. So the question I have to ask you tonight is, have you done that? Have you been born again? You might be asking questions like Nicodemus asked, and that is very important. I think that's great. But as Jesus said to him, same applies to you. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you look to Jesus as your only rescue, the only source of your salvation, you will not have eternal life. It is my prayer that everyone in here, anybody that is even watching right now, they can say, I have looked to the one who can, has, will, and forevermore redeem me. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the passages of Scripture 
that confront us, that confront us of our darkness, that confront us of our sin, because if it weren't for those passages, we would not know not only how to be made right, we would not even know we would need to be made right. And so, Lord, as we encounter this very well-known passage of Jesus talking to this man named Nicodemus who said, you must be born again, may we recognize what that means, recognize that it means coming to the end of ourselves, looking to you as the Israelites look to that bronze serpent that simply if they would just look up to that serpent, they would live. If we would but look up to you and what you did in the cro- on the cross and then conquering death in the grave, we would live. We can't explain it. It's hard to understand it. And as you said, it's just like the wind. We don't see it. We don't even quite understand it, but we see the effects of it and the effects of a changed life, the, the effects of a person who has been born again is a changed life. And I pray that everyone in here will be able to say that they either have experienced that or if they haven't, that they won't leave this place saying that they have not been changed. We thank you for your precious word and your precious son. It's in his name we pray, amen.